Act One of Dr. Johnson, a play by Mr. A. Edward Newton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. To Cecil Harmsworth, Esquire, M.P. My dear Harmsworth, in dedicating this book to you, I do not doubt that I chiefly honor myself. You will, nevertheless, accept it as gesture of appreciation from the plantations, as Dr. Johnson called this country. You have made 17 Gulf Square, the house in which the dictionary was written, a shrine to which Johnsonians resort to do honor to his memory. And, sir, in Johnsonian phrase, you are to regard this slight performance, if it be pleasing to you, as a reward of merit, and if otherwise, as one of the inconveniences of eminence. A. Edward Newton Argument Anyone with a teaspoonful of imagination can read this play with pleasure. With two teaspoonsful, I will not be responsible for results. He, or she, may be disappointed, for there is no plot to speak of. But there is talk, about as good talk as has ever been reported, and James Boswell as a reporter has never had an equal. My own part in the work is very attenuated, as attenuated as a piece of thread. It has to be, for on this slender thread of my own manufacture I have elected to string jewels, exquisite in cut and color. It is believed that the stones match and that the thread does not show much. The jewels are, most of them, genuine, a few are Teclas, and ardent Johnsonians and Boswellians, too, may amuse themselves in sorting them out if they care to. I permit myself to remark that several experts have been deceived. For several, I am indebted to friends. For example, the letter on page 108 was written many years ago, not by Dr. Johnson, but by an eminent Johnsonian scholar, to Mrs. Newton, who greatly values it. Likewise the retort, Madam, I take refuge in incredulity. I got from Mrs. John Marcot, who had it from her father. The phrase is faultlessly Johnsonian. If it was originally Johnson's, I cannot put my mental finger upon it. The reference to the dictionary being edited by a Scotch Presbyterian is an imitation of Johnson, which was doing double duty in the newspapers a few years ago. I do not know who set this ball rolling. Amy Lowell, Carolyn Sinclair, and Mrs. John Marco were invited to Mrs. Thrale's party, but were unable to accept. I don't care a fig for the defection of the females, Mrs. Thrale remarked to her husband one morning over the breakfast table, tossing aside several notes. Elizabeth Carter and Hannah Moore and Mrs. Montague will be only too glad to take their places, but mark my words, it means that we shall lose the Lord Primate, Edmund Burke and Charles Fox, and I had rather counted on their adding luster to the affair. Don't count your chickens before they are hatched, my dear, said Mr. Thrale. And, he continued, they will lose an excellent dinner. A word as to my cast. The greatest actor that England ever produced, as well as some of her greatest men, authors, artists, dramatists, and statesmen, grand ladies and women of the town, are included. It would be difficult to get such a company together nowadays. You may say that my actors are merely shadows. I stipulated that you were to have a teaspoonful of imagination. You remember that. For myself, at any rate, 
These people, all of them, are my very real friends. They are quite as real and much more entertaining than most of those amongst whom my lot is cast. Had I been in London in the middle of the 18th century, should I have been privileged to know them as I know them now? I should say, or rather they would have said, certainly not. I am better off as I am, and perhaps you are too, dear reader. Exit author, carrying a short piece of thread which he had left over. A. Edward Newton Oak Knoll, Lowellsford, Pennsylvania, June 23, 1922 Topographical Act One. Dr. Johnson's house in Gough Square still exists. In his time it was not an unfashionable neighborhood. It is believed to be the only one of Dr. Johnson's many London residences now remaining, and of all of them it is the most important, for in it Johnson lived for ten years, from 1748 to 1758, and in it he wrote the greater part of the dictionary and several other of his more important literary works. The house was acquired by Mr. Cecil Harmsworth, M.P., in 1911, and it remains his property, although it is understood that he may give it to the nation. After thoughtful and expensive alterations, which mercifully are but little in evidence, it has become one of the most visited of the small museums in London. It is not exactly easy to find. After leaving the Griffin, the site of Old Temple Bar, walking some distance east on the left-hand side of Fleet Street and peering up, or down a number of narrow courts with such seductive names as Johnson's Court, which, by the way, has no reference whatever to R. Johnson, and Bolt Court, one comes upon Wine Office Court. Turning up, or down, one passes on the right, after a few steps, the old Cheshire Cheese. The legend which associates this tavern with the great lexicographer is a triumph of advertising, for there is no single contemporary reference connecting Johnson with it. It is, however, quite possible that he may have frequented it, as it was on his side of Fleet Street, which, as an old man, he disliked to cross. Passing the cheese, a distance of perhaps fifty yards, and turning sharply to the left, a short walk brings one into Gough Square, with the Johnson House on the opposite side. And it is well worth a visit. It is now ninety years since Carlyle, not without labor and risk, discovered it, and wrote a description of it in his famous review of a new edition of Boswell's Life of Johnson. It is a substantial brick edifice of three stories and an attic. The front doorway deserves special attention, and the quaint chain bolt inside should not be overlooked. The stout, old-fashioned oak balustraded stairs, which caught Carlyle's eye, still remain as evidence of the good workmanship of two hundred and odd years ago. The caretakers, who live in a tiny house nearby, are excellent Johnsonians, and take pleasure in showing the house to the constantly increasing number of disciples of the dear old doctor, in whom we know not what most to admire, his wisdom, his wit, or his character. Acts 2 and 3 Thrale Place, Mr. Henry Thrale's county residence at Stratton, was a large substantial mansion situated in an open and salubrious suburb about six miles out of London. The house itself has long since disappeared, and the once fine estate is now entirely built over, but the family name is preserved in the tiny almshouses established by Henry Thrale in the High Street, and in Thrale Street, which runs through what was once the paddock. Act 4. Bolt Court is situated not many yards east of Gough Square. The house in which Dr. Johnson died 
was taken down many years ago to make room for a modern printing house. A tablet led into the wall marks its location. Characters in Act One Mr. Stewart, read by James Thomas Mr. Maitland, read by Thomas Peter Mr. Macbean, read by Alan Mapstone Mr. Levitt, read by Mike Casey Dr. Johnson, read by Jim Locke A Voice, Macpherson's, read by Lynette Calkins Mr. Boswell, read by Campbell Shelp. A Servant, Lord Chesterfield's, read by Aaron White. Mrs. Williams, read by Elsie Selwyn. Frank, Dr. Johnson's Colored Servant, read by Nemo. Mr. Allen, read by Adrian Stevens. Mrs. Woffington, read by Sandra Schmidt. Bet Flint, read by Lian Yao. Paul Carmichael, read by Eva Davis. Mrs. Thrill, read by Thorne. Narration, read by Todd. We are in London in February 1755, in a house in Gough Square off Fleet Street. The attic in which we find ourselves, in which we can see and hear without being ourselves observed, is large with the ceiling sloping on one side. The sun shining obscurely through three windows suggests early dawn, but it is almost noon. Before each window is a small deal table. Seated at these tables are three men, shabbily dressed. One is reading, the other two are writing. On the right, a door opens into a passage. On the left, a door opens into a bedroom. In a tiny grate in the corner, a small fire burns unwillingly. A screen in another corner partly conceals a couch on which is a man, seemingly asleep. A very large deal table is in the center of the room, in front of which is a great armchair, vacant. Plain shelves, loaded down with books, are on either side of each door. Folio volumes are in piles upon the floor. Extreme poverty is suggested in every detail. Papers are strewn about in great disorder. There is complete silence. Finally, one man... Having finished his writing, sands it, sticks his quill behind his ear, gets up, stretches himself, and remarks, Oh, Dr. Johnson is late this morning. Mr. Maitland, putting down his book, Dr. Johnson is always late. Dr. Johnson is later than usual. Dr. Johnson is always later than usual. Mr. McBean, looking up from his writing, I suppose he feels he can permit himself a little relaxation now that our dictionary is completed. Our dictionary? You grammatical outcast, you had very little to do with it. Dr. Johnson only took you on from pity. After a pause, I feel I have never done anything but copy, copy, copy. Words, words, words. I'm not fit for anything else. I will remember the time when Dr. Johnson thought you were not fit for that. What do you mean? That time when you copied letter S complete and entire on both sides of the paper, and it had all to be done over again. I remember. At a cost of twenty poons. I expected to see Dr. Johnson lose his temper. Instead of which he only remarked, Mistakes will happen. That which can be remedied at the expenditure of a few guineas cannot be regarded as serious. 
We must search doggedly to work and do it over again. I am told that the money he was to receive from the booksellers has all been spent. Every penny of it. And what we are to do now I can't imagine. Already I'm beginning to feel the pangs of hunger. I'll go and look for food. Mr. Levitt, an awkward and uncouth old man, rising from the couch. Did I hear the word food? You did. And hearing about it is as near as you're likely to come to breakfasting this morning. We ate every crumb in the house hours ago. Ah, well, I supped late last night and can fast till dinner. A grateful patient would insist upon my keeping him company till late, and as my day's work was done, I obliged him. And in that way you made sure of your fee, I suppose? I practice my profession for the love of it rather than for sixpences. It makes little difference to me whether I am paid in money or in food. Dr. Johnson gives me shelter here, and I need little else. And Mrs. Levitt, what of her? What of her? Sir, mine was not the first unfortunate alliance. Mrs. Levitt still makes her living in the streets, as she was accustomed to do before I married her. At present she is in a jail. I hear that she is soon to be tried at the Old Bailey for picking pockets. She may be transported unless I can persuade Dr. Johnson to speak for her character. Which I have no doubt you can. To be in misery and distress is to be certain of Dr. Johnson's compassion. Did he not testify as to the character of Mr. Thrale's tutor? What was that Italian's name? Baretti. And he committed murder. He stabbed a man in the street. But under great provocation? In self-defense? A street door closes with a bang, and voices are heard outside. Retract? Sir, what would you have me retract? I thought your book an imposture. I think it is an imposture still. Your rage I defy. I hope I shall never be deterred from detecting what I think a cheat by the menaces of a rough a voice macpherson's outside no man shall call me cheat and go unpunished any violence offered me i shall do my best to repel and what i cannot do for myself the law shall do for me go sir and tell your friends of our quarrel dr johnson a large burly man shabbily dressed throws open the door and enters followed by james boswell a young man with a tip-tilted nose, stylishly dressed. I am astonished. Sir, you may be astonished, but your astonishment will be as nothing compared to the amazement of that scoundrel, should he venture to attack me. I know how to take care of myself. Sam Foote once announced that he would take me off, as the saying goes, on the stage. I had this story from Tom Davies, the bookseller. What is the price of an oak stick, said I. Sixpence, said Tom. Give me leave, sir, said I, to send your servant to buy me a shilling's worth. I'll have double quantity and be ready for Mr. Foote's mimicry, and I give you leave to tell him so. Mr. Foote took his talents to another market. Good morning, Levitt. Good morning, gentlemen. Our task is almost at an end. Have our last sheets gone to the printer? Yes, sir. A messenger carried the last sheet away an hour since. What did he say? Did he leave any message? Yes, sir. He said, Thank God I have done with him. Dr. Johnson, smiling benignly. I am glad he thanks God for anything. 
gentlemen shall we make it a holiday you are excused until next monday at the cheshire cheese near by in fleet street there is beefsteak and kidney pie and a mug of mr thrale's ale giving mr mcbee a coin spend this among you thank you sir and i thank you sir good morning sir mr maitland bowing you are very good sir the three leave the room you must be relieved that the work is finished you did not fully realize what you were undertaking when you set out sir i knew very well what i was undertaking and very well how to go about it and have done it very well but i sadly underestimated the time it has taken me eight years but sir the french academy which consists of forty members took forty years to compile their dictionary dr johnson smiling then sir this is the proportion let me see forty times forty is sixteen hundred as eight is to sixteen hundred so is the proportion of an englishman to a frenchman i hope sir it has made you rich sir i did not work for money but for the honour of my country that we might no longer yield the palm of philology to the nations of the continent without a contest i am sir in point of fact as poor as i have ever been i would not say poorer for that would be impossible indeed only a few days ago i was arrested for debt is it possible it is not unusual for an author to be arrested for debt but the matter occasioned me little distress mr richardson became my surety and the matter was speedily adjusted but the booksellers surely sir they would not see you in want now that you have delivered to them so valuable a property sir they have treated me very well they are generous liberal-minded men who have done all that they agreed to do my chief concern is that i have protracted my work till most of those i wish to please have sunk into the grave success and miscarriage are now but empty words i dismiss the result with frigid tranquillity having little to fear from censure or to hope from praise but lord chesterfield i am told that he has written a paper to the world in which he praises your work in exilus and declares that he makes a total surrender of all his rights and privileges in the english language for the term of your dictatorship nay more that he believes in you as his pope and holds you to be infallible there is a loud rap upon the door which before dr johnson can reach it is opened from the outside and a young man in the livery of lord chesterfield enters he carries himself with impudence and keeps his hat upon his head i have a letter from lord chesterfield for dr johnson there is an answer dr johnson taking the letter and twirling it in his hands addressing himself slowly to mr boswell if my servant were here i would tell him to inform that young monkey that if he did not remove his hat i should be under the necessity of throwing him down the staircase as it is i shall be obliged to do so without warning instantly the hat comes off and the servant is all politeness beg pardon sir i am very sorry sir i did not know dr johnson was in the room will you read the letter sir there is an answer sir dr johnson opening the letter reads aloud lord chesterfield presents his compliments to dr johnson and takes this method of informing him that the dedication of the dictionary will not be displeasing to him and that he is ready to show his appreciation in whatever manner will be agreeable to its distinguished author very handsomely said 
why no sir it is too late i am indifferent as to what he may say and unwilling to confess obligation where no benefit has been received i would not have the public believe that i owe to him that which providence has enabled me to do by myself lord chesterfield is a very proud man but you are i think the prouder man of the two mine sir is defensive pride but enough of this to the servant tell your master that there is no answer that i will communicate with him thank you sir he goes dr johnson to levitt where is frank he was here sir not long since he has i think gone on an errand for mrs williams ah the dear lady i hope she wants for nothing i think not sir if i am not mistaken she sent him for some cat's meat for hodge i am sorry for that she should have waited until my return i would have gone for it i much dislike having a servant wait upon an animal hodge is a good cat but is nevertheless a cat enter mrs williams who is blind and a trifle deaf did i hear someone say i was a cat not in my hearing madam we were speaking of the wants of hodge ah yes i sent frank for some cat's meat he should be back by this time when he comes will you give him this penny handing mrs williams a coin i would not have him feel put upon as the saying is by going errands for a cat you do not sir always treat your friends with so much consideration my friends sir know how to protect themselves consideration for one's servants is the hallmark of the gentleman i shall remember this dr johnson have you seen the epigram of mr garrick on your dictionary it is prodigiously clever sir do not use large words for small matters it is i grant you complimentary coming from an old pupil but davy is not much of a poet he is always endeavouring to shine out of his line he should confine himself to the stage where he has few equals and no superiors i think the couplet and johnson well armed like a hero of yore has beat forty french and will beat forty more excellent sir you may think it excellent but that does not make it so a college servant enters but here comes my faithful servant frank i am expecting a visit from a french lady of great distinction should she call to-day admit her with all ceremony we must not let the french outdo us in politeness yes master he bows and retires dr johnson may i have a word with you my wife occasions me much concern i have been arrested for debts of her contracting she spends much of her time in the streets and uh, i hear that she is to be tried at the old bailey for picking pockets unless uh, you'll stand for her character i sir you amaze me i have not been without suspicion that you have been cheated in your wife but this is a matter in which your friends can be of little service i would not be a slave to her caprice it might be for the best that she should be sent to the plantations sir sometimes i think it would a man should marry for virtue for wit for beauty or for money i cannot see that you have secured these or any of them by the surrender of your independence i suggest that the law take its course you shall make your home with me mrs williams shall look after your wants and paul carmichael shall so hector you that you will think your lady has returned 
I have no doubt that she will, sir. Mr. Levitt leaves the room. He married a streetwalker who had persuaded him that she was nearly related to a man of fortune. She regarded him as a physician in considerable practice. The marvels of the alliance make commonplace the occurrences of the Arabian Nights. But, sir, who is Paul Carmichael? Why, sir, I'm not sure that I know. She is a poor woman, a violent temper that I picked up one night in the street, desperately ill, and I brought her here on my back. In short, sir, she is a slut, but she has no home, and I took her in. Enter Frank. Dr. Johnson, Mr. Allen craves a dozen words with you, sir, on a subject, he says, of the greatest importance. Tell him to come up. To Mr. Boswell. Mr. Allen is my neighbor and landlord, and an excellent man. His dinners, too, are excellent. Enter Mr. Allen. Dr. Johnson, excuse my thus interrupting you in your study, but my friend Dr. Dodd, the unfortunate clergyman, has been sentenced to be hanged for forgery. Discovering Mr. Boswell. Pardon me, sir. I did not know you was engaged. Mr. James Boswell, Mr. Allen, and a very good friend of mine. They shake hands. Can I be of any service to your friend? Dr. Dodd to be hanged, a clergyman? This is awful. It's thought, sir, that you could do much. His friends would petition the Lord Chancellor, the King even, for a pardon or a commutation of the sentence. Signatures can be had by thousands. I do not doubt it. People will put their name to anything, chiefly for the satisfaction of showing that they can write. But what is my part? I am expected to prepare the petition, I suppose. If you will be so good. I must first make myself acquainted with the facts. I would not wish to be known as moving in the matter, but will do what I can. There has never been a time when the thought of death was not terrible to me. I, too, have given much thought to the subject of death. Sir, let us not discuss it. It matters not so much how a man dies, but how he lives. I oh, thank you, sir, and will go at once to Dr. Dodd. I have influence with Mr. Ackerman, the keeper at Newgate. I'll bid you good day, sir. Mr. Boswell, you're very obedient. He goes out. Is Dr. Dodd a friend of yours, sir? No, sir. I saw him once, I think. Then why this distress on his account? He is a human being. Is not that enough? He was, I have heard, a very bad man. Sir, he may have been. But the worst man does more good than evil. He is a friend of Allen's, who is a friend of mine, and he is a clergyman. You have many friends, sir. I hope I have, sir. If a man does not make new acquaintances, as he advances through life, he will soon find himself alone. A man, sir, should keep his friendships in constant repair. Enter Frank. Announcing with a flourish. The lady from France. Enter Mrs. Wolfington. My dear Peg. Why all this ceremony? You cannot, sir, have been expecting to see me. No, madam, but I had an inkling of a visit from Madame de Boufflet, a French lady of wit and fashion, and I had instructed my man to be very polite, as I would not seem unappreciative of her call. Permit me, madam, to present Mr. James Boswell, a young gentleman just come from Scotland. Your very humble servant, madam. I only arrived yesterday, and have not yet had the unspeakable delight of seeing you, though your fame has reached us in the north. In what part are you now ravishing the town? As Sir Harry Wildair, 
sir, the town is good enough. I join the ranks of your adorers, madam, and shall not drink wine till I have seen you. But, madam, to what do I owe the honour of this call? I am almost ashamed to tell you, sir, but I heard that the gentleman was with you, sir, and I thought he might be Davy, sir. We have had a quarrel, and he has left me, and I much fear for Kitty Fisher. Oh, madam, he will return, or if he does not, I... Silence, sir, I will not have you make an assignation in my house. To Mrs. Wolfington. Depend upon it, madam. Davy will soon return. When he does, let me know, and I will drop in and have a cup of tea with you. Strong tea, madam, of your making. Ah, you have been such a comfort to me. I could not, I think, live without Davy. Gentlemen? With a low bow. I bid you good day. She goes out. How delightful she is! Why, yes, sir, one does not commonly take the town by storm without uncommon charm, but I hope Garrick has not gone to Kitty Fisher, else I shall have another friend in distress. And who may that be? Why, from the number of portraits he has made of her, I rather think Sir Joshua Reynolds is taken in that quarter. I assure you, sir, he would soon recover from the blow. I remember to have had my heart broken twice, within six months, by the desertion of a mistress. Oh, how delighted I am to be in London again. I thought that my coach would never arrive. Fleet Street, I think, never had so animated an appearance. It has, sir, but the high tide of human existence is, I think, at Charing Cross. The passage door opens very quietly, and Bet Flint, a woman of the town, enters. Bet, I'm surprised to see you. I knew you would be, sir. But I've come to ask a favour of you, sir. I've written my life in verse, and the publishers say it would have a greater sale if you were to write an introduction to it. Why, Bet, no doubt it would, but I can hardly do that. What would the newspapers say? They're always telling lies about us, old fellows. No, my girl, it won't do. Take your verses to some of your admirers. You have enough. Yes, sir, surely, sir, but I want to talk to Johnson. And I would oblige you if I could, but it is impossible. Run along. With a smile. I was just about to say there's a good girl. He sees her to the door. James Boswell seems to be attracted by her. And pray, sir, who may that be? Bet Flint. I'm glad that you do not know her. She is habitually a drunkard and a woman of the town, occasionally a thief, needless to say a woman of much effrontery, from the country, I think. London draws all kinds to itself. Country girls come to town to conceal their shame, and men of learning to meet their match. They do, sir. People who live in the country are fit for the country. There is, I think, within ten miles from where we are now sitting more learning than in all the rest of England. I and Scotland, too, sir, put together. Sir, that reminds me of a question I wish to ask. Have you received any assistance from the learned in the compilation of your great dictionary? If I may accept twenty etymologies sent me anonymously by a gentleman whom i afterwards discovered to be the bishop of rochester i laboured alone not in the soft obscurities of retirement or under the shelter of academic bowers but amidst inconvenience and distraction in poverty and sickness and in sorrow yet sir you shall have your reward to have grappled single-handed with great libraries Surely your name will last as long as the language you have done so much to perpetuate. 
sir i was a poet doomed at last to awake a lexicographer the unhappy writer of a dictionary labours without hope of praise fortunate if he escapes reproach but i am not yet so lost in lexicography as to forget that words are the daughters of earth and that things are the sons of heaven lord chesterfield will be much chagrined if you do not dedicate your work to him sir after making great professions he ignored me it is seven years since i waited in his outward rooms during which time i brought my work to completion without one act of assistance one word of encouragement or one smile of favour the notice which he is now pleased to take of my labours had it been early had it been kind but it has been delayed till i am indifferent and cannot enjoy it till i am solitary and cannot impart it till i am known and do not want it i once thought him a lord among wits but i find he is only a wit among lords the chief glory of a nation is its people and to them i shall dedicate my work would it not be curious sir taking into consideration your dislike of the scotch and your contempt for presbyterians if a century or so from now the oxford university press decided to bring out an edition of your dictionary edited by a scotch presbyterian to be facetious sir it is not necessary to be indecent enter paul carmichael what is it paul dr johnson i cannot well manage the roast for we have no jack do the best you can with the string my dear to boswell i have for some time contemplated buying a jack because i think a jack is some credit to a house she goes out well but you'll have a spit too no sir no that would be superfluous for we should never use it if a jack is seen a spit will be presumed enter frank another lady sir to see you she would not give her name madame de boufflay at last frank could not manage the name ask her to have the kindness to ascend quick sir take this chair be careful it has but three legs my lady from france must have the only sound chair in the room places a sound chair conspicuously enter mrs thrall dr johnson mr boswell you were it appears expecting me not you madam but a french lady of distinction hence these preparations but you are welcome be seated madam cast yourself into the arms of this chair in all confidence they are sound as are also its legs i do not hesitate to accept your invitation but i must get to business before interruption i am come sir to carry you with me to the country to the country madam why should you carry me to the country change of scene and air change of company and change of food you've been caged up here with this menagerie of yours all too long mr thrill charged me not to return to streatham without you it is most kind of you madam but i cannot go i have undertaken certain duties that i would fain perform mr boswell we could take with us your most obedient madam in your company and in dr johnson's i could be happy on a desert island and streatham is not a desert island my coach and four awaits us in fleet street in an hour you shall have exchanged the bricks and mortar of london for fresh fields and pastures new dr johnson correcting her fresh woods and pastures new madam it is in licitous but the sentiment does not appeal to me one green field is like another and the same may be said of a woods 
but surely you do not enjoy the sordid sights and stenches of the town not all the sights of london are sordid many are magnificent and as for its smells blowing hard pooh we have a fine library at streatham i have just received a parcel of new books as to which i want your opinion and mr thrill will i am sure wish to discuss with you the merits of a dish of lampreys he has just received from scotland our strawberries grown under glass are just coming in fancy strawberries and clotted cream so early in the season and in profusion too madam you would shake the resolution of a much stronger man than i am but only a moment ago paul carmichael was here telling me of a roast that we were to have for dinner and mrs williams and de Blain and flevitt they all hate one another i alone can order sufficient tranquillity to enable every member of my menagerie as you call it to eat their dinner in peace it was to be a dinner in honour of the completion of my dictionary you may argue sir but i will not be denied let me reason with mrs williams the only one of your family group susceptible to reason she will admit that now your great book is finished you should allow yourself a little relaxation and consider sir the fewer the mouths the greater the quantity of food to go into them what you do not eat will no doubt be cheerfully consumed by the hungry-looking individual i passed upon the staircase i had thought to have dined at home and there is the possibility of a charming woman from france let no possibility of a charming woman from france keep you from enjoying the actuality of a with a curtsy charming woman from wales and there is a good dinner to be eaten although i lead the life of a kept woman i am not altogether deprived of the confidence of our cook and before i left home this morning i swore not only that i would be home in time for it but that i would fetch with me the great lexicographer preparations are now going forward in imagination i smell a turtle soup and the lampreys are fresh from scotland there is a saddle of lamb fresh peas and sparrow-grass and veal pie with raisins in it enough madam enough a feast for lucullus a tender ham and the glass-houses of streatham are famous for their fruits it is too early for walled fruit but the fragrance of the pineapples is delicious and the oranges were superb when i last saw them mr thrill drinks wine and perhaps you can be tempted to keep him company or should you prefer it join me in lemonade my resolution is like snow in the sun it is a dinner to ask a man to some people pretend not to mind what they eat for my part i mind my belly very studiously he who does not will hardly mind anything else mr boswell will excuse me i am sure frank a clean shirt i'm for the country enter frank bowing and smiling yes sir yes sir end of act one